Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb. Now, this week is the week where we are expecting Rishi to announce some changes to the furlough scheme, and I think a nervous time for many in hospitality, uh, as rumours are going around about a 25% contribution. Um, We're hoping, I guess, that there is some flexibility with that, and maybe sectors such as, I don't know, legals or accountancy, um, or less impacted sectors than hospitality, perhaps that becomes an obligation. Uh, But in hospitality, some sort of flexibility would be useful. I think, you know, a number of people that I've spoken to who are looking uh, maybe at takeaway operations or or opening, but not opening in our full guise, perhaps the opportunity to bring uh, some of our team members back for Friday, Saturday, Sunday service um, and and pay for, you know, perhaps three days of the week, but for the government to continue to support the team sort of two or or three days a week, or maybe to bring some people back and and, and not others, but the opportunity to to re-furlough for shorter periods of time. That's the kind of flexibility as an industry that we are going to need, uh, as I guess as we limp back up to speed, and that, and that limping is going to be very different for different sectors. So if you're a, a city centre uh, restaurant or maybe sort of daytime trade operation um, where you rely on the business community to come in and buy lunch, that's very different to, say, a country hotel or a country pub, you know, the likes of the Pig and the Chute and Glen, uh, or people like me with big outside terraces on the beach, you know, may be able to trade faster, uh, but it may well be that's only for two months you know maybe we get some trading in july and august and then the flexibility to refurlough our teams over the winter is key so yeah we'll all look out for that hopefully in the next few days we will get some clarity but in today's episode, I am chatting to Peter Ducker from the Institute of Hospitality. And a slightly guilty confession in the fact that whilst I've interviewed a couple of, uh, of members of the IOH, I didn't know a huge amount about the organisation. But I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting to Peter, clearly uh, a well-informed uh, human of hospitality, a huge amount of knowledge over a very broad range of the sector. So we do end up diving around some topics a little bit. We start with the OTAs, the online travel travel agencies uh, because I found out about Peter's background specifically around that sector and it's something that I'd like to do a full podcast on uh, one day but we have a little dip into that Uh, we dip into the challenges of education so the IOH do a lot of work with the universities and the accreditation of courses uh, and we touch on I guess this issue of of when the university started to look more for profit arguably maybe than education uh, and that hospitality can be a very labour intensive part of education particularly if you need commercial kitchens. So we touch on that and what it means for the employment of people and for recruiting uh, people in our industry Uh, and something that's come up with a few other guests as well is this thing around uh, the access to cheap labour maybe from Eastern Europe and and that tap has been turned off to a certain extent partly through Brexit and partly through the pandemic Uh, and does that create an opportunity actually to improve standards, uh, maybe improve payment uh, in the UK. Uh, And then we touch on mentorship which comes across you know really clearly as something that people is very passionate about and the IOH and something that I think is great and and specifically I guess around this often issue that you know it's exciting in our industry that you can fast track up through the hierarchy Uh, but it does mean that at quite a young age you may potentially be managing people who are older than you um, and and you might be on a different career trajectory to some of your peers Uh, and the mentorship uh, really helps uh, yeah just develop people's I suppose you know managerial skills and then we get into the details of the pandemic and and the furloughing of of the uh, the IOH's team and the impact it has on their events and then a broader look at the industry um, and how we 
we may all come out of this. So fascinating chat, and I really hope you enjoy it. And as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, it would be really appreciated. Uh, become a Patreon supporter via humansofhospitality.co.uk forward slash donate. And anytime you can click on the five-star reviews uh, and leave us a little uh, worded review, that is also uh, a great deal of help. Okay, thanks so much. Enjoy the episode, and I'll be back with a new one soon. Cheers. Peter Ducker from the Institute of Hospitality. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Can I just ask, are you are you in your office or are you locked down at home? I'm, I'm locked down at home, but uh, fortunately we're very connected. So my office phone rings on my desk. Perfect. Okay. Did you work from home before or was this a pandemic response? No, I worked from home before. Two years ago, we changed um, the way we work. We moved offices and just changed the technology. So that's a bit of luck, isn't it? Really, because our offices are in Southwest London, and uh, our job is to be out with the industry. And so most of my colleagues are out and about a lot, and uh, it's easier to recruit the best people rather than the best people who can get to Southwest London. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. So where where are you based? I'm I'm based south of Guildford. I'm about fifteen miles south of Guildford. Excellent. Okay, good. So. Uh, CEO or Chief Executive of the Institute of Hospitality. For people who don't know it, can you just explain a little bit about what the Institute of Hospitality is and what it does and what your role is, please? Sure. Well, first of all, is what we do is we're technically an educational charity, but we're the professional body for the industry. So there's two main tranches to what we do. First, we support members who are practicing hospitality people, whether they're hoteliers, restaurateurs, working in food service or in the supply chain, um, through lifelong learning. And our motto is, you know, professionalism through lifelong learning. So we do an awful lot of career development, mentoring, um, advice, management guides, etc. plus provide networking. Um, and then the other half of what we do is we work with universities, really to promote quality in, in hospitality education, whether, whether it's in a university or whether it's in a hotel school. And we work with something like 200 institutions around the world. And we've got members around the world as well. We're a UK organisation, but um, some 30% of our members are overseas. Interestingly, in the last 20 years, there used to be expats working abroad. And increasingly now, they are local people who still choose to belong to the Institute. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, as to why so many abroad? Is that because there, are, there, are there similar organisations in lots of countries or, or are you sort of world-renowned and is that why you appeal to the international market? Well, I, th- I think a lot, a lot of the international stuff comes about because of our work with universities around the world. By the time people graduate, they're used to our resources, they're used to what we do and so uh, see us as an easy place to go to. And there aren't many bodies like ours. I mean, you know, we, we have one of the largest online libraries um, of of management books focused on hospitality in the world. And, uh, you know, you can access it wherever you are. I mean, we have more students working with us in China than we have in the UK at the moment. Really? Wow. So how, how old is the uh, organisation? The organisation is 82 years old. And uh, it started just before the First World War. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just evolved over the years. Okay. Started as a commercial enterprise? or no, start, start, Started to promote hospitality training Um so it was very much a training organization from the start. And then it morphed into being a professional body in the really in the late 50s, early 60s. Right. OK. And you're a charity. We're a charity. Yeah, we have charitable status, which uh, which is a good thing to have because it clearly sets our agenda as not being for profit. But uh, and having clear charitable objectives, which are training, education and development. Right. And how long have you been leading it? I've been leading it for seven years now. Yeah. But I've been a member since I 
since I entered the industry a long time ago. I'm, I'm, rec- okay. I'm, I'm what I call a recovering hotelier. Are you? I was going to say, yeah, what's your background then? Well, I was in hotel management for a long time. Um, particularly, I moved into sales and marketing. Um, and, uh, and then for 17 years, I ran a hotel reservations company, which I sold in 2005. 2005. Okay. So this is, I'm trying to think this, this was pre everything being booked online, but before the OTAs, was it? No, it was, it was, it was during the growth of the OTAs. The OTAs really came of age after 9-11 and and they really grew in the early 2000s. Um, And we were a mid-sized company sort of turning over, I don't know, about 12 million a year. And uh, technologically, we just couldn't keep up with the OTAs. So uh, we, I, I, I thought, in fact, a Finnish company who was developing a technology platform came to us, and I thought, if I get out of this now, I can get on and do something else. And thank God, I, I now run the professional body and absolutely love it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So um, going off on a slight tangent, but can't help but ask, because obviously yeah, OTAs and online travel agents, for those who, who don't follow it, who have become, I don't know, a bit of a reputation, I suppose, for charging a significant amount of commission and for potentially trying to, um, I don't know, either manipulate price or certainly stop hotels going direct. Have you Are you impartial on this or have you got a, a oh, particular got, opinion? It sounds like you're very experienced no, in that field. No, I've got views on everything, believe me. But <laughs> I've, I've, got, I've got particular views on that subject. Go on then. I can't. I can't help but ask because it's fascinating for us. As I, as I say, I, I, I used to be a hotel salesman, so I, I got used to dealing with hotel booking agencies. And at one time, they were regarded as the natural enemy. Um, and later, I was a hotel booking agent, so I was sort of gamekeeper turned poacher, I suppose. And um, I got into that because in those days, the technology enabled a, a small and medium-sized business to do it well. Um, and it was bandit country, to be quite frank. There were some rogues out there. And as, as the industry got more professional, the, the Hotel Booking Agents Association was formed. And, it, and it, its its great achievement is to create a good platform between um, hotel booking agents who work mainly in the corporate space, as I'm sure you know, and uh, and hoteliers and, and venues. Um, I think what's the, pro- the problem with the OTAs is they are so powerful and we're allowed to get so powerful that um, that, that that they some of them feel they can ride roughshod over over their supply chain. My my view is, if I can just continue, if I can just ramble for a moment, uh, please do. Yeah, no, um, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, my my view is that what needs to happen is hoteliers need to campaign, particularly with the ones who are the worst culprits. And I think you probably all know who they are. Um, that that they have in between themselves and the marketplace, they, they have a hotelier advisory board um, who are there really to help them to understand just how they cause problems to hotels and to form a better relationship. I mean, hotel companies have had advisory boards with intermediaries and clients for years. And I think that's really the way that uh, OTAs have to evolve. Some of them are quite good at doing it already. Um, some of them really do need to have that. But the board has to be there not to be an apologist for the OTA to the hotel industry, but has to be there really to provide a, a, a viable interface because, you know, we're all part of a big ecosystem, aren't we? And um, if one part of the ecosystem destroys or damages the other parts, then uh, it's never going to be a healthy environment. Mm. That's what needs to happen. But they got so powerful so quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been not, there hasn't the, the the issue is of course there are a few of them and there are millions of hotel companies. Yeah, you know, we, we are 
we are a myriad of, of small enterprise. There's a few global players who, you know, obviously we all know, but most of the supply chain is um, small and mid-sized businesses. And uh, so there isn't that unity. There isn't that cohesion behind it. Um, and uh, I think that's what has to change over time. Yeah. And since I've gone off on an instantaneous tangent and people, some people listening may not know the issue. So I guess the, the, the biggest challenge we have is that they're charging maybe 20, 25% commission on a booking. And I don't think the public necessarily get that. And then you're charging 20%, you know, in VAT. So 40, 45% of what you're paying disappears mm. very quickly. And the frustration is that although many hotels may have their own website and their own sort of direct booking, that even if you type in a particular hotel's name that you're searching for, all too often, the OTA have got you know multi-million pound budgets and their names are coming up before the hotels and and i get it from a consumer perspective because that ability to search multiple locations and uh yeah and, and it's already saved your card details and your address details so it's kind of a one-click booking process but if 45 percent of what you're charging comes out of the system straight away and all too often the ota money is, is heading offshore to a, to a company that's maybe not paying taxes in the uk and it, it feels like it's sucking a, a sort of disproportionate amount of revenue out, out of the uk hospitality sector i guess yeah. doesn't it yeah yeah I, I, it, it... It must feel like that, yes, for sure. Um, yeah. But I think, is it, I mean, but it's more complicated than that. Um, I think one of the interesting things is even if people book direct, they will look at an OTA site first just to check, just to check they're getting value for money. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it was uh, Cornell University did some really interesting research on that. That most people before they most private individuals before they book a hotel will look at seven different websites. To, 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 to check that they're getting this a it's the hotel they want and b that uh, they're, they're buying it at the right price um, and a lot of work is and i'm sure you know mark a lot of work is being done now to help hoteliers to uh, Im improve their conversion rate of, of casual casual visitors into bookers yeah yeah with with the otas directly or or, in, or no, independently no, to them direct to website Direct to website, yeah. yeah I guess that's the key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. we don't have the yeah. same resources or, or training or knowledge, and, and quite often hoteliers are not, uh, not you know, techy enough or just the amount of time to be fair. And the OTAs, you know, they do provide a service because they do make it very easy to book and uh, and they do raise awareness, you know, globally. All of a sudden, if you're a little hotel that's just opened in the countryside, you can get global representation. It, oh, yeah, it just, yeah, it just feels like the balance isn't quite. Yeah, there. you see, you've got to turn that one around and say the benefit of the World Wide Web and the benefit of the fact that. You know, I mean, the two things really that were first to the World Wide Web, World Wide Web were, were, were travel and pornography, weren't they? Um, and um, tra travel, it, it's, where, it's where people buy stuff these days, um, you know, and um, it, it's where they buy their travel products. And the better hoteliers can get at harnessing that and, and making that conversion, the, 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 the better it can be. And there's lots of companies, I, I agree with you, hoteliers tend not to be that tech savvy very often. But there's lots of companies that will support them in it these days and, and help them to develop their uh, online presence and, their, and, and enhance their conversion rate. Mm. And is that part of your uh, training as well? Do you do any courses as the Institute for Hospitality in that? We, we, no, we don't specifically on that, but we do, we do have partner organisations who specialise in that field. And uh, so we kind of signpost people to that and they run webinars for us and, uh, and, and that sort of thing, your articles and management okay. guides um to be quite frank it's we're not also we're not specifically about the hotel sector you know more than half of our practitioner members are hoteliers but there's an awful lot of work in the food service and the restaurant sector as well so uh, 
And I have to say, one of the things that we're always criticised about is all of the food service guys say you're all about hotels and all of the hotel guys say you're all about food service. So, you know, we can't, we, we're balancing things the whole time. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. And so I was going to ask about your, your typical member, I suppose, and it sounds like it's pretty diverse. But if, if you look at the uh, restaurant side, does that tend to be, you know, I guess you've got the casual dining sector, you've got the independent sector, you've got your kind of hotel restaurants. Is there a particular sector that either does or, or does not uh, tend to be pretty well represented with you? Um, I guess the fast food sector isn't particularly well represented with us. Casual dining is, but it tends to be senior management in it, um, who are the people sort of well, generally these days, so much of it is private equity, isn't it? Um, and they tend to be the people who sit in the corporate office, have a food and beverage background, um, but are working with the, the private equity people to uh, identify investment and to, to provide that link with the chain rather than property-based people. But we have an awful lot of independent restaurateurs or people who operate small groups, you know, small small local chains. Okay. And, and the key benefits, the key pe- reason people like that tend to join? Well, and they, they join A, to be part of a network, so they get hooked into the industry, B, for their own professional development, but also to provide access to, to training and development for their staff. I mean, two, two years ago, we um, acquired the, the Academy of Food and Wine Service, which, which is a training enterprise in, in, in that sector. And uh, we're now pushing out a lot of training, really taking people through from when they start working in, in a restaurant, you know, day one training of this is why you need to wash your hands, through to um, supervisory and management training. Okay, and these these courses are done um, in specific locations, or so is it put we, online? We, we put we've put all that online now because it, it really is stuff that can be consumed in bite sized chunks, and, and lends itself perfectly to online training. Okay, and is it broken down into a syllabus where you'd you'd follow a number of uh, elements, I suppose, of a specific course? Or? Exactly that. Yeah. So there's a pathway through from, as I say, day one. This is why you wash your hands. Through to this is how you plan staffing in a restaurant this is how you uh, you know write a budget for a restaurant right so you're almost the the online university of uh, of hospitality yeah i mean that's re- that's really sort of further education rather than higher education isn't it but um but yeah we're, we're, we're the online college if you like or one of the online colleges and uh, okay you know and and these are, are these accredited kind of courses are they specific specific yeah. to the i presume you're known as the ioh as a as a short yeah, we're, sure. known, uh, we're known as the I, we're known as the IOH. Um, we, we are, in a, as a professional body, one of the things we do is accreditation. Right. So we don't credit our own courses. I think there's a kind of given that if, if we produce them, that they're, they're they're credit worthy in their own own right. But yeah. um, you know, we accredit um, education courses, you know, around around the world, really, so that if you're taking a an IOH accredited first degree, a you know bachelor's degree in Singapore. It equates exactly in terms of levels to the one you take in, in, in Canada or the one you take in the UK or the one you take in France. You know, there's a sort of it, we say that this is the standard of education for a bachelor degree or for postgrad. Right. And, and how is the world of uh, university courses in hospitality going? So I, I'm based down in Bournemouth and our local university did have a, a very good reputation for um, hospitality courses at one stage, but it seemed to be struggling in some ways to to fill that sector. Is that is that a sort of nationwide um, indication of, of change or is that very local? I, ge- I genuinely don't no, know. No, it, it, it is an international problem. Um, worse, I think, in the UK. Um and without getting too political, but I've got to get a bit political to say this. Um, the problem is that these days universities are, are tasked to be profitable in their own right. And 
there's two, there's two challenges. First and foremost, operating a hotel school within a university is more expensive than operating a generic business degree, um, particularly if they have training restaurants and, and you know, that sort of operation. Um, and vice chancellors of universities, who are the guys who run them as businesses, um, look at it and they say, well, I, you know, if we, if we run a hospitality course, A, we can only get 12 or 13 or 20 students into the kitchen, so they're small modules, whereas if we run a generic business degree, which we then pile other subjects on, so there's a business degree in um, hospitality, there's a business degree in, I can't think of another one, you know, uh, retail, um, we can run lectures in a theatre with 200 students in from 15 different streams of course, and just occasionally give modules which provide that sprinkle of specific knowledge on the top. And, and whilst that happens, um, hospitality education is deteriorating. And that's, that's certainly what's happened in Bournemouth. It's been merged. The School of Hospitality, which has a fantastic reputation, um, has, it has been merged over time into different, uh, um, different schools within the university. And whilst the educating staff there in the School of Hospitality are still really fighting a rearguard action and fighting it very well. Um, they're kind of pushing against the trend. The same's happened in other places. I'm not singling out Bournemouth. I mean, I, I'm an alumni of Oxford Brooks and uh, um, it's, it's, you know, a very similar thing has happened there. And, and if some of that then is a, is a problem of demand and some of it is a problem of supply, does either one of those dominate? Well, I, I think supply dominates because it, it's a simple mathematical thing that it's more expensive to offer vocational courses than it is to offer generic courses. So, uh, it, it, it's really governed by the, the maths there. Um, and I think in terms of, as an industry, what we need to do about it is say, well, okay, we, 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 we want our, our young graduates to feel comfortable talking to a chef. We don't, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to have um, a degree education to be a, a very good chef. But um, in management, you need to be able to talk to chefs. You need to be able to understand them, understand how they do what they do. And uh, so I think increasingly organizations and we're certainly looking at it we're saying well we, we want to support professional education of hospitality but recognize the fact that you know if you recruit graduates from other disciplines into into your management programs um, you need to have some sort of conversion program that indoctrinates them in the the, the culture and the unique aspects of our industry and there are some things that thank god you're a hotelier you you, you know you know very well that you know the, the whole on the face of it, anybody can run a hotel, ha ha. The truth of the matter is that it, it's it's millions of small transactions, all of which have to be delivered consistency with consistency. Uh, and that's a management challenge. And you have to have management who understand deep down and dirty into the processes and, and, and the workings behind what makes a good cappuccino, what makes a good well-presented bedroom when guests arrive, um, to get things to a standard and to maintain that standard. Because... You know, you don't want to be in your hotel 24-7, but you want to know that when you're not there, standards don't drop. Mm. I've had Gareth Banner on here from the NED and uh, Andrew Stembridge from the Chewton Glen as a couple of examples. And when you meet guys like that, you know, they, they really are the very top of uh, of the industry, I guess, and what they do and have an incredible, you know, knowledge. I mean, the, the number of moving parts in the NED absolutely oh, blew my mind. I know. How, how many people go through their lobby every week? Oh, I can't remember it, what it was, it, but just 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 the just the restaurant that, that served their staff alone open twenty four seven blew my mind. But yeah, an incredible place. Yeah, it, it's a re, it's a remarkable enterprise that. 
And then yeah. you say at the other end, you look at uh, Iconic and what what Andrew's doing there. And my goodness, you know, um, yeah. operating at such an ex- an exceptionally high level. Um, that's a good thing about that's the great thing about our industry, isn't it? It is, yeah. But I guess the, the trouble is, if it, from the demand supply for courses, is I suppose hospitality in its sort of uh, hugest guise, and, and it is a huge employer. You know, we're the third, fourth largest employer in the country, I think, aren't we? Which has come to light quite a lot during this uh, pandemic. But it still has this overriding uh, reputation, I suppose, which is probably why the demand side is being hit of of there being very few barriers to entry and and it is the sort of industry that so many people end up getting into because they did a job while they were at uni or something or or went into it for a short period of time fell in love with it and then developed a career but very very rarely does it seem to be the sort of the number one primary focus does that seem fair yeah no it seems totally fair um and i i I was born into a family of hoteliers and uh, even so my careers advisor at school was dead against me going to study hotel management um and uh you think, God, why, why, why is that? Thank God I didn't listen to him. Um, but I think we do have to change the image of the industry. But then people have been saying that forever. You know, it, it's not a new problem. Um, and I think part of the problem is the fact that because we are made up of so many small and medium-sized enterprises, you can't see a clear career path. You know, if you're trained to be an engineer, you can see, well, I can go and work for Rolls-Royce or whichever of the engineering companies, you know, if, if I train in HR, um, if I'm an accountant, if I could get one of those disciplines, you know, then I've got a career, a clear career path. But um, the, the, the problem is that very often to, to advance your career, you have to move jobs um, mm. because of the nature of the fact that you, you, you kind of max out in the business that you're in and there's, there's no headroom above you for your next step. Um, yeah. and that, that, I think, is one of the disincentives. Um, and probably the other thing is, I don't think we've done ourselves any favor, favors over the years, um, not, not just in the UK, but internationally, you know, by being seen as a place where you can always get a job. Um, of course, most of the jobs are at the lower end of the, of the pyramid. You know, it's quite, it's quite a steep pyramid to get up to senior management, isn't it? And uh, people look at that and say, well, you know, there's an awful lot of guys waiting and clearing tables and do, doing, doing entry-level jobs to the number of people who are running the business. So, it's quite a rarefied atmosphere to get up there. Yeah, although I would say the flip side is, you know, you can come and prove yourself. You know, the one thing that we don't need, uh, albeit I appreciate, hugely uh, beneficial, and, and maybe it comes later once you've fallen in love with the sector, but, you know, you, you don't need formal qualifications to move very quickly because all we really need is, is is good human beings with the ability to articulate, communicate, look you in the eye, smile, and fundamentally just help other humans enjoy their visit, whether that be in a hotel for days or, or, or in a restaurant just for a couple of hours. And actually, you know, the exciting thing about our sector is you you can sort of leap up the uh, the hierarchy very quickly if you've got the right attitude. But all too often, then I suppose you get to a point where you don't necessarily have the uh, the more formal skills and the managerial skills and the communication and the finance skills. But I guess at that point, that that's probably why uh, I guess your mentorship and some of the other training you do is 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 you know particularly beneficial. I suppose that's exactly right, and and I think. Um... Yeah, that's completely right, and I think that's what we have to change. Um, it is great that you, and one of the great, I think one of one of our greatest assets is the fact that you can enter at any level and achieve any level. I mean, uh, it, whilst I've been running this, when I when I took over running the institute, our, our president at that time was Sir David Michels, who, who'd been global chief executive of Hilton, um, one of the largest hoteliers in the world, and he rejoices in the fact that he hated school, um, didn't do well at school. And his first job in hotels was as a porter. And uh, he, he, he built up through that and, and ended up running 
Hilton Worldwide. He acquired a lot of education along the way, but um, he was always a champion of, of the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's not all about formal education at a, at, at a young age. It's about developing your skills as you go along. And I don't think we make enough, enough about that as, as an industry. Um, and I mean, what, one, if I can just quote Andrew, I don't know if he said this on his podcast, but um, I was talking to him about it once, Andrew Stembridge. And he said, well, do you know, in some ways we are, we've been our own worst enemy because it's been so easy for so many years to recruit staff from Europe who wanted to come in that we haven't focused enough on promoting the industry as a career of choice at that entry level um, to our home market. And, I, and mm. I, he's very he's very truthful there, very right. Yeah, no, it's true. And in fact, Guy from Riverford was saying a similar thing with regard to farming. Obviously, the current crisis, which we'll come on to shortly, um, means that there's also, you know, potentially the farmers have either been a a little bit lazy or it's been just particularly cost efficient to bring over the Romanians and the Eastern Europeans to do picking, which at the minute they can't do. But actually, the the opportunity to to improve, you know, the standards and the pay for for pickers and for farmers, you know, is, is a genuine opportunity that if we could do that, being a little bit more you know, self-sufficient. And actually it, it can be a great career choice for some people who want to spend their time outside and learn about agriculture and learn about farming. So yeah, maybe this pandemic is going to have some some good stuff um, that will come off the back of it. Um, can I just ask quickly, how many people does the IOH employ then directly? Oh, we're a small organization where there's 14 of us. So okay. We're a, great. We're a small organization, but uh... yeah, but, but lots of, so that, that wouldn't include all, all your help. So for example, if we just touch on the mentor program, as I had a little look on your your website look really yeah. interesting because you've got some very high profile uh mentors i guess can you just talk a little bit about you know what that service is and, and what the mentor and the mentoree might look like okay well the reason we started mentoring is is it, it's just a win-win um and i think we started originally because we wanted to do something which meant that we could say to people entering the industry you're welcome and we want to share our passion for the industry with you. And that's really what mentoring is all about. Um, and But the, the collateral benefit of it is that mentors always say to me that they they get, they get they feel guilty because they seem to get more from it than they give. Because mentoring is completely different from being a manager. Um, it, it's more akin in some ways to being a parent. But, you know, um, you're not there to instruct. You're there to guide and to, uh, to help people develop their own thoughts. And... Uh, we developed our mentoring program really because I think it's exactly what a professional body should be doing. And it sends out exactly the right message from people who have achieved levels of success in the industry, um, whether they're still quite early in their career or they're, you know, further advanced. And we've got, we've got mentors who are running multi-million pound businesses and mentors who are kind of five years out of study themselves and um, got their first general managership or, you know, first, first, senior management job um and and both mentors and mentees benefit from it it's 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 a it's a great system it it totally works with the empathy of our culture of our industry and uh, yeah it's been it's been one of our big successes and and is this something that people apply to you to say you know they they would like to be uh, or to have a mentor and then you try and pair people up with somebody appropriate or? absolutely so we talk about mentoring when we talk to students when we talk to young people um and obviously when people graduate um very often they they turn their student membership into graduate membership um so we approach them then we also work with a number of employers who have a grad program a graduate program um and they want to provide a mentor 
both within the business and also, if you like, a pastoral mentor from outside the business. So with no commercial axe to grind, really, so that they can be there to support and guide and a, and a mentee can go to them and say, well, do you know, I don't really want to talk to my boss about this or my line manager about this or my internal mentor about this. But, you know, I'm, I'm 23 years old and I've got my first supervisory job and I'm finding it really difficult to manage a team that's got people in there who've been doing the same job for 40 years or for 30 years you know how do I how do I cope with that age gap as a young person um and that's the sort of thing that a mentor will will, will talk through with a mentee and those are real problems I'm sure you know we all went through that when we were junior managers and you know how do you make that step when you, you're trying to be, be be the boss to somebody who knows the job far better than you do and will still be doing it five years ten years after you've moved on yeah absolutely you know, no it's uh, it's uh, it, yeah one it, of the it, it's about that and it's so it's about making people welcome in the industry and kind of smoothing out the bumpy road of the first year you know as people are really trying to find their feet and maybe lacking a bit in confidence maybe not but um you know and of course easy thing for us to do is to provide a framework for mentoring to happen in because to get the ball rolling as as mentors get to know mentees we 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 give them a couple of interesting articles um from either from inter- industry magazines or from outside the industry and say we'll both read this and then talk it to have a chat about it you know and it, it really it, mentoring works so well and uh, in large and small organizations you know you can be an organization with 10 employees with six employees and still increase retention by and, and i mean that's a whole other thing but um i think if you provide mentoring for your staff they're going to stay longer because they're getting more from you. Mm. And is this something that people pay for specifically or is it part mm. of uh, membership? No, no. no, it's something we do freely and gladly with our members. You know, it's, it's what, it's what we do. And, uh, you know, when, when you're in membership, it's one of the things that you get either as a mentor or as a mentee. Okay. So for people listening, who think that sounds fantastic. Is it people can join either as an individual or they can encourage their, their company to join? Is it, how does membership work? Both, both, both ways. Um, most of our, tr- tr- traditionally we are a professional body. And so our members are individual members of the profession, but increasingly these days companies are saying, well, we will bring our cohort of members or of, of managers or our aspiring leaders of tomorrow in as part of our investment in their in their continued professional development so they come both in as, as part of a kind of job lot with a company as a, as a, as a deal with a company where it's part of their management development and and as individuals okay perfect well at the end of this i'll put some links through to the website so people who are inspired can go and have a little a, a read and look into it but um, i wanted to chat to you chat to you yeah thank you um obviously so we're in in may 2020 just to date this so we are uh pretty much in the thick of lockdown we've just had had some sort of rights released i suppose you can go outside and sit in the sun now so boris says but the impact of this uh pandemic on hospitality sector you know in particular in the last couple of months has been catastrophic you know first first to get hit hardest to get hit probably last to come out of it i want to talk a little bit about the impact on the industry but before before we do that on the uh ioh directly have you needed to Furlough your teams. I presume you run events and things. What's what's the impact been on on you guys? Well, that that you you actually hit bang on it. I mean, it it's been the weirdest time for all of us, hasn't it? It really has. In, in all my career, I've never seen anything like this. None of us have. Um, we have had to furlough some people, um, particularly as you say, specifically those who work just in events, because 
I don't quite know when we're going to next have a, 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 a live event. Um, so we have, we've had to do that perversely. Uh, and also some of our people who work on the um, side supporting universities, because, uh, of course, universities effectively are closed at the moment, aren't they? Um, in, in many parts of the world. Um, although, in fact, we're just bringing some of those back, back in. Um, but I think... The, it, the long-term consequence of, of this is going to be massive. It, it's, it really is. A, I think so many businesses are going to be strapped for cash, and, and uh, really that's a, that's a challenge. But And I think the confidence, what, what the most important thing we need to do is, is to inspire confidence that when you go and eat out or you stay in a hotel, um, you're not going to die. You're not going to, you know, you're not, seriously, you know, you're not. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty frank, but you're right. Yeah, that is the, that's the key thing you don't want when you go out for dinner. That, you know, the, the, the food will be prepared safely. It will be served safely. Um, that you will be in a clean environment, an environment which is cleaned to, 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 to the right standards to protect you. Um, that your, your bedroom will be sanitized. You know, we're not talking about, you know, the old thing where they used to put a strip of paper over the loose seat to show that it had been, it'd been cleaned. But it, there has to be, I think, Cleaning regimes will become the new marketing initiative, and, and b- businesses are going to be talking about just what they're doing to protect both their clients and their staff. Um, because I think you're not going to want to work in a hotel where you don't think they're taking ad- adequate precautions for me, or a restaurant, or, or, or a bar, whatever. Yeah, I mean, we should be very good at that because food fundamentally can kill you if it's not prepared properly. Um, you know, shellfish can can do it even if it is prepared properly. So we we do have, tend to be an industry that understands that. Yeah. You know, second to healthcare, you'd like to think that we're particularly good at, at recognizing our responsibilities. However, um, maybe not so much the hotel sector, although it's probably you know still relevant. But certainly the the dining sector in the last few years has been you know really suffering with increased supply, increased overhead, increased costs. Uh, you know, drop in margins if you're you know we've seen high profile jamie oliver's uh, coluccio's patisserie valerie we've seen all these companies going under anyway if you increase the cleaning regime decrease the covers you know both of those are going to have a direct impact on revenue and on costs how do we how do we navigate that yeah the maths don't work and you can't charge 60 pounds for a burger because it's cost you so much to produce it and you can only get half the number of covers in your restaurant you're right those are massive challenges um i wonder if they will be a long-term benefit for the independent restaurant sector, which is the side that has suffered most and hardest. And I'm sure you know a lot about that, Mark. Um, I do. Because private equity will, will look at this and say, you know, the fizz has gone out of the market um, because we can't get the same number of covers into a thousand square foot restaurant. We can't, um, um, we've got massive on costs in terms of uh, uh, cleaning regimes. Um, it's enormously difficult to redesign our kitchens or redesign our menus so that our chefs can be socially distanced or can be can at least work safely. Um, so if and 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 it, and it is in the private equity sector that we're seeing them disappear at the moment, aren't we? Where they're saying, and these guys I think are quite ruthless, and they say, well, if the maths don't work, the maths don't work, and uh, you know, so it might well be that there's a renaissance of independent restaurants. Um, mm. But, operate, but operating under those tough conditions where, you know, there are price points that you can't exceed. Um, and uh, it's going to be hard to provide that, you know, mm. at a profit. 
Absolutely. Yeah, the deluded optimist in me hopes that this is an opportunity for the independent sector. This is called the humans of hospitality rather than the brands of hospitality and was launched almost for that reason. In the fact that I found it a little depressing that so much of hospitality was being turned into a commodity with the, the backing of the VCs and the kind of constant rollout of, of what I describe as fairly beige operations. And actually, I love our sector because it's tens of thousands of years old and it's always been about service and hospitality and looking after people and, and quirky and, and different. And everywhere you go globally, you know, is, is a completely different experience because of the nuances of, of local culture. And I found it a little bit depressing to see us, yeah, just, just turn that into a commodity. However, I, you know, even I wouldn't have wished for quite such a, uh, a catastrophic impact because cash flow wise, unfortunately, I think a lot of the independents are going to struggle to come out of this the, the other side as well. And then, as you say, even if we do get through, um, yeah, how we operate, you know, with those kind of margins. I, I suppose one of the key things that we've had because of the growth in our sector is, is the sort of constantly increasing rents. All too often, business rates are, are reflective of, uh, of of the rent we're paying. That feels like something that has to change because if we've got less covers and we can't turn over the same amount and we're making a tiny margin on a big amount of turnover, would you say that... And I suppose that's also reflected in the capital investment in properties in the UK compared to a lot of Europe. Our, our hotels are more expensive. What's your thoughts on the longer-term impact, I suppose, on, on yeah, property values and rents? Um, well, I, I, I think... I, I, I'm not an expert in the commercial property market, but I, I think that if you are operating commercial property, you're very worried at the moment because you have seen the retail sector suffer incredibly badly. And, uh, you know, and we were talking, I think, before we went online um, and you were saying about, uh, you know, the deliveries that come to the house all the time. Um, you know, we, we, we all buy everything online these days, don't we? You know, yeah. and uh, I think so. Landlord, landlords, property owners, investors are going to be looking at it and saying, well, we are going to have to work with finer margins and, and it, there will be deflation in, in commercial property, I'm quite sure. Not least, not least, not only in retail and, and you know, restaurant space, but, but, but also in commercial property of office buildings because working at home is becoming much more accessible than it was before, wasn't it? Isn't, isn't it? You know, and uh, People aren't going to want necessarily to get, stand on a crowded train and go in, into a busy city every day when, when they can work perfectly comfortably at home. So habits are going to change. And this is going to be a real, I think this pandemic will be, we'll look back on it when we're over the, the bruising impact um, and say, well, that was a real sea change of, of the way that the whole economy hangs together and works. And, uh, you know, hopefully one of the impacts will be that um, uh, property leases and rentals become more affordable and you can operate a restaurant because if you can't they're going to have a lot of empty restaurant spaces aren't they if you can't do it at the profit you'll stop doing it yeah absolutely and they're such an important part of, of placemaking you know towns and cities and, oh. and villages you know they're all they all thrive you know as human beings i think you know that's almost our, our, our reason for being on planet earth so the thought of not having those in the local community would, would be a pretty depressing place to live wouldn't it yeah i think it i think it would and uh, you know i'm certainly not going to knock the private equity guys but i do think those who are um, entrepreneurs, independent businesses, that those who have built their businesses and are from our world rather than investors who've come in to benefit from the success of hospitality. And, and you know, it's been a remarkable success, hasn't it? You know, if you, if you, I, I don't know how long you've been in the industry, but, you know, I've, I've been in it long enough now to say that the standards, both of hotel accommodation and restaurant operations at all levels, not fine dining necessarily more than others. I, I think family dining and, you know, everything is just at a level now that is so much higher than it was 20, 30 years ago. 
Um, and I think that those of us who are operators and, and people who are actually from the industry rather than um, investors who come in to, because they see gains there um, are very tenacious and, and very resilient. And, you know, this is, a, this is a massive shock that we're going through now. But we've been through big shocks before, you know, um, and businesses have rebounded after, you know, um, wars going back a time, you know, um, after after wars, after after, you know, Gulf War, Gulf Two and all the rest of it. We, you know, I certainly lived through those years um, and we've recovered from deep recession, the 2008 recession. Hospitality did very well through that. And uh, you know, I think we will su- we will survive this. Obviously, um, mm. there will be casualties. There will be people who are just too highly geared, or or lose heart, and or, or just don't have the patience to wait for the the improvements to come. But uh, our industry will rebound. It will take time, but it will rebound. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and and you're right. I, I mean, it's been exciting already to see the entrepreneurial sector and its response, and whether that be you know starting to do home delivery or taking stuff around by bikes, and and actually just the reputation of our industry. I think as we've sort of stood up and fed the key workers and fed the NHS, and and I think from a uh, I don't know a per- perception of the industry, maybe it's done us some favors, and people have realised you know how important it is to their day to day lives. It's not until you take something away that people you know realise how much they enjoy going to a to a pub and having a pint of beer and a cheeseburger or something and maybe the whole industry will get a little bit more sort of positive appreciation i suppose off the back of this and if we can explain to people because i think one of the key things that's come out is that you know a number of operators have been struggling but pretty much everybody has come out now and said look this is how tight our margins are this is how quickly we ran out of cash when you closed us and this is how long we'll survive i think it was something like 17 days worth of cash flow in most hospitality businesses and uh, and maybe now people realize that actually you know we're not all making millions of quid there'll be a little bit more support from the consumer and i really hope that the consumer does go out although uh, i'm realistic enough to know i haven't seen the publicity you know when a few kfcs and mcdonald's opened in the last 10 days and the queues outside them it depresses me slightly because what i'd love to see is the consumer sort of yeah appreciating those those local entrepreneurial businesses and going out and supporting them i I totally agree and i I do i do think it will happen but um yeah um but it's gonna it's gonna be a battle isn't it it is, yeah, absolutely. So, speaking of which, you know, the government have stepped up and, and recognised this. Uh, I guess across all sectors with with the furloughing scheme in many ways. But what's your thoughts on the government support that's come about so far, and what would you like to see improved or changed? Well, I think the government support so far has been very good. I, I think they've recognised what had to happen, and you know, I can quite understand that they want to protect jobs through the furlough scheme rather than uh, go the American way because something like. 37 million people in America have been made redundant in the last two months, Um, which, again, is a massive cost for the economy. And certainly if we did it in in, in the UK or Europe, we'd have enormous costs. The government have enormous costs on that. Um, I think what we really need to see is that, and this is going to be the challenge for government, because they're going to have to get their money back in some way. And I think we're all anticipating that there'll be tax rises. But as an industry, we are going to have a long, slow road to recovery. And we need support in that, whether it is um, holidays on some of, some of the taxes that we pay, whether it is um, incentives and support, whether it is a you know a lessening of, of rates, business rates, um, or back to the old question, and it's the thing that UK hospitality bang on about a lot um, about whether the VAT rate should should be reduced for hospitality. Um, these things are all difficult to envisage. At, at a time when, as I say, the government's going to be really trying to re- rebuild its reserves again, or or pay pay down some of it, some of the debt that it's acquired, 
keeping the keeping the country going. Um, I wouldn't want to be in politics at the moment, would you? <laughs> no, what a tough job, eh? And uh, yeah, to anybody being critical of the government, I would say, my goodness, you know, knowing how hard it is to operate a business, and I think most. Business operators and senior managers, you know, credit where credit's due. We say, look, it's tough, isn't it? These things are never black and white. It's nuance. It's balance. You're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. The current scenario is either one way the economy is going to be screwed and the other way people are going to die. And, and the seesaw between those two things, yeah, what what a challenging yeah. thing that is to try yeah. and navigate. Yeah, and and and, and, and okay, we're, we're, we're navigating our own challenges, but but everything is happening in real time. And so the, 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 the poor guys running the government don't have the time to reflect, think, plan, um, develop strategies. Everything is on the fly. Everything is on the hoof. And this this thing unfolded so fast, didn't it? It, it, was, it was an absolute avalanche of, of stuff going wrong. And, um, you know, I think it's very, it's very easy to criticise the government. It's very easy to criticise, you know, and, and, and any, any organisation, you know, where they have to react so quickly that... Uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's just mind blowing. I mean, we know how difficult it is to run a service on a Saturday night, and uh, it's difficult in hospitality. You know, people don't stagger their arrival. Everybody arrives between uh, seven fifty and eight thirty, and and it all goes completely chaotic in forty minutes. And and that's just you know running service. How you how you extrapolate that across a country and and something like this is just absolutely mind blowing. Um. Speaking of government support, you know, one of the things I guess we're looking for as an industry is some sort of clarity on when we might be able to open and then what that might look like and whether that's cleaning standards, whether it's things like, you know, we've seen perspex screens in restaurants, whether it's lower uh, occupancy rates. Is, does the IOH, have you got an ear to government and are you part of the sort of creating the solutions to this or are you very much waiting for government um, to, to lead on this? Well, we're, we're, we're not a lobbying organisation. Um, the, the lobbying organisation for our industry is, is UK Hospitality. And I think Kate Nichols and her team have done a fantastic job representing the industry to government and the, you know, the, 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 the things they're doing both in public and behind the scenes are fabulous. Um, but we do have access into um, the all-party all group, the all-party working group on hospitality. Um, the, one of the industry representatives on that is, is, is Grant Hearn, who, who, who is a fellow of the Institute, speaks for the... Um, uh, UK hospitality, but also speaks for us. So uh, we we kind of have indirect routes in. But as I say, our main purpose is not to be a lobbying organisation. Um, yeah. we, we have actually I, problem with with the Department of Education, um, obviously because we're an educational charity. But we 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 don't, you know, we we are better advised to support UK hospitality and the work they're doing than to do a kind of me too thing where we're, we're putting in slightly a slightly different agenda. Um, they're the ones who set the agenda. They're the strategists. Support them getting on with it. What we do do is take their messages and cascade them through to our our fifteen thousand members. Yeah. Well, likewise, Kate Nichols has actually been on the uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago when they were really in the thick of the uh, the sort of furloughing negotiations and all that kind of stuff. And I think yeah, what what they've pulled off uh, is fantastic yeah. and uh, to be applauded. So. Um, as we look to reopening, so we've been told pretty much early July, the, the sort of earliest date, I guess, albeit many businesses are making pivots into, into home delivery or takeaway. Um, there's also the sort of conversations, I suppose, around the complexities maybe of 
you know, city center restaurants that might be underground and fully air conditioned compared to, uh, again, you know, iconic hotels and, and something like the Tewton Glen and having a big sort of outside space and, and lots of acres where people can spread out or, or restaurants that may have huge terraces or country pubs compared to city centers. Have you, have you kind of appreciate this is, this is complex and this is why we're lucky not to be in government, but any thoughts on whether this needs to be a sort of a blanket release of hospitality or whether we're going to need to be a little bit more intelligent and a little bit more staggered, I suppose, in, in how we release it. Have you given that any thought? Well, I, I've given it a lot of thought and, I, and I, I can only see it being a staggered release because I think, as you say, there are some businesses and some sectors which can uh, kind of re-engage themselves far more easily than, than others. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's going to be challenges with, with, with places where, as you say, they're a subterranean restaurant or they're all de- they're halfway up an office building and they're dependent on or a high stru- high-rise building and they're dependent totally on shared air conditioning. I think there's going to be challenges with that. Um, I think the places with outdoor space, it's very easy to see how they can do it. Um, and, yeah, I think it'll be a phased release. I really do. Mm. I think it's the year of alfresco, isn't it? Probably it'll have start yeah, to absolutely pour down with rain because the weather has been fantastic pretty much since since Boris told us we all had to stay in our houses. And and as soon as we're released, uh, knowing the British weather, it will it will rain for a couple of months. But at the moment, snowing you know, I've got yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got I've got a seafront uh, restaurant, one of mine. You know, big terrace. We got plenty of room on the sand, and we think, oh my goodness, you know, we we really could get these open in a safe way. But I appreciate you know how, how you legislate for the nuances of our industry must be phenomenally challenging. Yeah, ex- exactly. But uh, please, God, this weather does continue because I think, oh, yeah. you know, the, st- the, the, the part, of, part of the salvation for the industry is, is going to be the staycation this year. Yeah, very yeah. much so. We're not, we're not going abroad for our holes, are we? So, uh, no, 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 and we're relying on that. I think if we if we can have a hundred percent occupancy for July and August and September, that would be very much appreciative to it. So anybody listening, uh, yeah, please do uh, book somewhere in the UK and go somewhere in July, August, September. It'd be hugely appreciated. Um, we've we've seen. You know, I, I touched on this you know a few moments ago, but we've seen our industry in many ways respond positively. Um, in, you know, with regards to feeding key workers or, or, or pivoting. Have you seen any great examples that have sort of jumped out from any any of your members where they've um, I don't know either, either been supportive in a charitable way or they've pivoted their business in a particular way? Has anything jump out that you've spotted in the last couple of months? Oh, do you know there have been so many heartwarming stories, haven't there? Um, so many examples of 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 our industry doing great things to support um to, to support the community at large um i think it's mind-blowing that you know claridge is is open for key workers you know um but that's just one example i mean hundreds of hotels are, are just serving that that those people who need to self-isolate from their families so they can be near their work and do their jobs in hospitals you know everybody, everybody made such a big sacrifice and i think i think our industry has stepped up to the plate they've been supporting food banks they've been you know a lot of people have given kitchens over so that uh, food can be prepared for um, home delivery for people in need there, there have been so many heartwarming stories but um can i just make a more general point on that though that i think please do j- j- even before this, and I think we really have, as an industry, we can hold our head up high for the way that we have responded to, to the, the civic need. Um, one of the things that has humbled, as a hotelier who, who came into, into the Institute, one of the things that has humbled me most was um, I spent time 
looking at Meals on Wheels and going out and doing Meals on Wheels delivery. And it made me realise that, A, it's a thankless sector of the industry. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody, you know, thinks, I hope when I grow up I can I can run a Meals on Wheels organisation. Um, but the contribution that that makes to giving people independent living where otherwise they would have to be institutionalised in some way and the bridge that it creates between people who are isolated because of various conditions, age and infirmity, and the community, enormously important. And I came away from that feeling so so proud of the industry for doing that. And I think that whole feeling, is, 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 I've just got it on acid now, because um, we really have excelled ourselves as an industry in terms of demonstrating that we are empathetic. You know, you, you, if you're going to succeed in this industry, you've got to be a people person. You, you've got to have compassion. You've got to have all of those things. And um, we've just really stood up to the plate and, and done what we can to support key workers, to uh, support families who are disadvantaged or going hungry because they don't have access. All, all, all sorts of tremendous heartwarming stories come out. And, uh, you know, I do think that as, a, as an industry, we can all be very proud of that. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. I think Danny Meyer makes this point of, um, you know, hospitality being a reflex. And in the same way, if you threw something at people, they would normally duck. Uh, people who are, who are destined for a life in this industry just genuinely want to make other people feel better, you know, and have a better day for a short period or a long period of time. And, uh, and, and the, you know, the whole industry has had that reflex response to this, which says, you know, look, we are about people. We spend almost every minute of every day serving people. And, and how can we step up and what can we do to help? And it's been, uh, yeah, it's made, made me proud of our sector again, which is uh, which is exciting to see because it's definitely been having some problems, I guess, in in the last few years. So let's hope it continues to get that support. Um, is there anything else, Peter? Thank you for sparing so much time. It's been fascinating to chat to you. But is there, is there anything, any other burning issue that you would like to bring up while you've got uh, our, our ear? I think we've covered the key burning issues, haven't we? I, I think the only, I think the only thing to say at the at the end of this is these are dark dark times, but. Um, we, we we all need grit and determination. We need to power through this and to really be resilient, um, not be afraid to ask people for help, whether it's our landlords or whether it's our supply chain. You know, we need to all work together to 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 survive this and and to get back on track. Um, but we, you know, as I say, I have absolute faith that as an industry we will survive. A because we're essential, we're an essential industry, but also because. Of, of the grit and determination and the resilience that we've got. No, I'll, I'll second that 100%. And I think you're right, to ask for help is key. I don't think it's about, you know, the tenants versus the landlords. And there's clearly going to be a lot more focus on this in the, in the next couple of months, or very soon, in fact, as the next quarter's uh, sort of national rent payments are due. And it's not, yeah, it's not us against them. It's saying, look, you know, we're in this together. We can't take 100% of the hit on this. You can't take 100% of the hit, but we do need to work together to find a way out, because that is the only way that, that all of our businesses um, are going to survive going forward. Where should people go, Peter, if they want to follow you guys? Is there a particular social media channel or is it your web? Website that's the best place to go to find more details on social media we're ioh underscore online and uh, you'll find us on twitter you'll find us on instagram you'll find us on facebook you'll find us uh, obviously in linkedin um yeah find us there or ioh uh, perfect okay well i'll pop some links up as well on the show notes to this podcast but thank you so much for um for sparing the time and uh yeah popping your head above the parapet in this uh in this pandemic time it's really appreciated really enjoyed our chat i've really enjoyed it thank you so much for asking me mark and, and i and i wish you and yours every success and thank you good luck okay cheers 
So there you have it, what a thoroughly decent human being Peter Ducker is, and the IOH sounds like they're doing a fantastic job uh, in, in representing and supporting our industry in so many fields. So really hope you enjoyed it. I will pop some links up. Uh, go to humansofhospitality.co.uk and I'll put a couple of links up to the IH, uh, IOH's uh, website and to their social media. Uh, and don't forget, please leave a review either on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. Uh, click on five stars, little written review. Uh, really helps out and uh, and would be greatly appreciated okay i'll be uh, back again in the next few days